cultures are self-preserving and that's great if you have a good healthy culture but if you're trying to create change or even trying to um, improve or strengthen a culture there will always be this natural resistance so thinking wrong is really about how do we trick our brains and how do we trick our culture our communities into exploring new possibilities into departing from the status quo into exploring that bold path that sort of most aspirational reality and then finding practical ways to to, to build that as opposed to saying well that was fun but now we're just going to go back to the status quo Hi, folks, and welcome to this episode of Mission Forward, where each week we bring you a thought-provoking and perspective-shifting conversation on the world around us and the role that communications and communicators play in helping us make sense of the world. I'm Carrie Fox, your host and CEO of Mission Partners, a social impact communications firm and certified B Corporation. Today, I've got someone on the show that believes the way we solve problems is broken, and I cannot wait to hear more from him on that. Greg is the founder of, co-founder of strategy firm Solve Next and the author of Think Wrong. He has over 30 years of experience thinking wrong about leadership, planning, and decision-making, and his book is used around the world and across all sectors of society, from global corporations to individuals running local nonprofits. Greg, as you know, we set this up earlier today. In this season's show, we are digging in at this really unique intersection of design and communication and power. And I'm going to have you start, if you could, tell me a little more about you and your work and what led you to do the awesome work you are doing today. All right. Well, thanks for the introduction and uh, the invitation to the conversation. First of all, it's great to be with you. Um, that, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, the, the human side of that story would be, I, I was a kid who liked to draw a lot, <laughs> and I liked working on complex, complex problems. Um, I, I, somehow I was torn between whether I would go to, to law school. My mother worked at Stanford Law School, uh, so I, I was around a lot of lawyers as a kid. Um, and it, somehow that was so, sort of appealing to me. Um, but I also really liked, uh, I, 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 I really liked art, but didn't think there was any way to make a living <laughs> doing that, right? Um, and I was fortunate to have this uh, high school uh, art teacher who took us around to design schools and exposed us to the fact that there is actually a career path there. So I ended up going to Otis Parsons and uh, I studied communication design of all things um, under Sheila uh, Levrant de Breckville, and uh, who was one of the founders of the Women's Center in LA. And um, I, I discovered this word, world where I could deal with the complexity that was kind of appealing to me in the in the legal world of, of complex problems and, and trying to, I was raised a, a little bit of a, a hippie kid, a liberal, uh, you know, card carrying, bleeding heart liberal. So I liked the idea of being able to do work that would change uh, things for the better. Um, and so there's this weird intersection of you can use communication, you can use art, you can use design, and you can use your brain to actually make a difference. And so that's that's how I ended up in in, in this world. And I've discovered I've I've worked in every really aspect of design from very traditional design studios, uh, early days of graphical user interface design and user experience design to working in inside a big corporation, a global uh, corporation, um, and had all kinds of experiences that showed me that there was a real opportunity to use creativity for a higher purpose to unlock the ingenuity that people actually, it, people who don't see themselves as creative actually have in them. They're sort of naturally born with this and in our systems of education, our workplaces kind of 
push that out of them. Um, so getting people to rediscover that and giving them some tools for doing that. And then uh, the one time I did work client side from, from 92 to 99, uh, it taught me that I was unemployable, that I didn't want to work in a corporation, <laughs> that, that I found it too oppressive. Um, so when I, when I came back uh, from the UK at, at the end of that uh, stint of work to the US, it was the height of the dot-com boom. And I really just set out on my own with, with some partners to, to do this. So that's a little bit of the kind of story. It, it, but it's, it's born in, it really is born out of being this kid who liked to sit and draw. <laughs> mm. You and I have so much in common already. I'm realizing that that's, <laughs> it's very similar to my story of having this aha moment that you could in fact do communications for good and make a living out of it. Yeah. <laughs> I remember so many people early on saying, uh, when they heard I was going to start an agency that focused in on supporting nonprofits and foundations, they said, good luck, you'll be out of business in a year. Right. There's nothing there <laughs> for you, which is not at all the truth. There is so much good yeah. that can be done in the communication space. Yeah, it is, it is something that I think is generally undervalued. Um, and, and so people have that perception. And, and um, you know, the, the, the work that we do with nonprofits and foundations is often the most meaningful work that we do, right? And, and, and it makes the biggest difference. And so from a, from a real capital markets perspective, it ought to be rewarded most highly. It's not always, but, uh, but there, you can find that. <laughs> you know what's so interesting, though, is what you all have developed in Solve Next and Think Wrong gets at a lot of the pieces that we cover on the show, which is how we break away from the status quo. Right. So as organizations or as leaders come into organizations, so many times the conversation is, well, this is the way we're going to do it because this is the way that it's done. And we've seen a lot of that change in the last few years, for sure. But you all really take this on, right? Like on a daily basis, you're challenging people to look differently at the status quo. Absolutely. So Think Wrong, the book and, and the, the problem-solving uh, approach is really about how do we disrupt both the way that our brain works, the kind of neurological realities that we deal with, the sort of how we learn things, the synaptic connections that are created and that sort of trap us in these ruts of how we think about things and how we solve things. And also, how do we disrupt culture? Because cultures are self-preserving, and that's great if you have a good, healthy culture. But if you're trying to create change or even trying to um, improve or strengthen a culture, there will always be this natural resistance. So thinking wrong is really about how do we trick our brain and how do we trick our culture, our communities, into exploring new possibilities, into departing from the status quo, into exploring that bold path, that sort of most aspirational reality, and then finding practical ways to, to, to build that as opposed to saying, well, that was fun, but now we're just going to go back to the status quo. So our work really has not been around how do we fine tune or super optimize something, but how do we create positive disruptions? How do we create positive change? Greg, when folks hire you, do they know what they are hiring you for or do they think they know? And really it's something else. Oh, uh, it's almost always the latter, right? It's almost always they think they know, but <laughs> and, um, and, and so that comes out of discovery. First of all, it's not something that people purchase a lot, right? So it's sort of the, the, this kind of service is not something that you're, it's not like going through the drive-in at, you know, McDonald's, you know, <laughs> it's like you, you don't buy it a lot. So when you do, it feels a little risky. Like I'm stepping into this territory that's maybe, um, a little foreign. And that, that gets back to your point of, of people doing things that they know, repeating cycles, feeling safe and comfortable with something. So they, so somebody standing up and saying, Hey, I'm willing to step into the unknown and try something new. Um, 
usually that means that they or their organization is at a, a point of significant enough discomfort that they have to try something new, right? Um, it's, it's unusual. We do have clients who are really successful and they just keep setting the bar higher and higher. And, and, and they want to, it's like, you know, we have one client who uh, we were helping them with a recruiting problem. They hire seven, they, they, they go to the top 10 business schools in the world. They make the top 10 candidates at those business schools and offer, and they get seven of them. And we said, well, who, <laughs> what, what, do you want to improve on that? That's pretty good. And they said, well, we, we want to get nine of them. I was like, well, why aren't you going after 10? They said, we'll always lose one to private equity because we, they, they'll just offer them more money than we ever would. But we want to get the top nine. So that's an example where they're very secure and very confident, but they wanted to do even better. But usually what you find is, um, is that an organization is at a point of discomfort or dissatisfaction that's, that's, that's acute enough that they have to change. Um, so they're more willing to, to try things that they haven't tried before. Uh, and, and that, and, and people don't always realize that when they come in, you know, you have, sometimes you have to, um, create some clarity for them to understand that there should be a greater level of dissatisfaction than there is, you know, that they're kind of feeling happy in the status quo, but maybe there's an impending inflection point that they ought to be aware of, uh, and, and, and that they ought to make a change before that, before they hit that inflection point. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's good. And and it actually speaks to this framework that you've got of the difference between solve now and solve next, right? Always being looking ahead to what's to what's to come. And and I'm curious, and if you think about the last few years, what are people coming to you to solve for? And has that changed over time? Yeah, it has changed. Um, And, you know, when we first started doing this, we were working with a lot of leadership teams around it because. Uh, uh, John Bielenberg, who's one of our co-founders, and, and, and Mike Byrne and I all, all um, co-authored the Think Wrong book. Um, we did a lot of work in the brand space. And in the brand space, people were, think, you know, I, I boiled down to these simple questions of who are you? What do you do? Why does that matter? And how do you go about doing it? That's sort of, and, and, and how well are those things understood? Um, and so we did a lot of work with leadership teams around the, answering those questions and thinking about how does that actually manifest itself in your organization? Now, being situated in the San Francisco Bay Area, we had you know our share of tech clients and tech companies, but we found ourselves sort of expanding beyond product and service questions to organizational design and to what kind of impact would we have um, on society? What's our you know what's the value beyond uh, monetary gain that we're trying to create in the world? That 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 persists. Certainly, within the last two years, you know, we we uh, we've had um, sort of out of the um, moment that we had as a country with George Floyd's murder. Um, you know, there was a renewed interest in uh, dealing with issues of equity and inclusion and diversity. Um, so we that is definitely spiked in terms of clients who are coming to us and saying we need to be paying serious attention here. Um, and then we also, uh, you know, having gone through the pandemic, you talked about people maybe got more, became more open to trying things. Um, the pandemic forced, forced us into the situation where anything that we felt certain about, any status quo was just thrown out the window. We're all operating in this world of uncertainty and, and no status quo. Um, we are now seeing uh, clients, unfortunately, with Delta, it's sort of... <laughs> stalled, but they're saying, okay, as we go back now to the workplace, as we kind of come out of the pandemic, um, what do we want to leave behind? 
right? And what did we discover during the pandemic that we want to keep and move forward? So there's a little bit of this, we're, we're finding a lot of clients are looking at what are our ways of working? What are our expectations of our people um, it, it, that we had before the pandemic? What changed during the pandemic? What did we love? What did we hate about pre-pandemic? What do we love? What do we hate about pandemic? What are we going to take into the future with us? And how is that going to look? And how is that going to find its way, not only to our people, to our workforce, but to our customers, our clients, our partners, and our ecosystem? So we're seeing a lot of attention um, paid there. And I think there's an intersection between that and the, the, the diversity uh, equity and inclusion work, right? There's a big intersection, which is um, if we want to create a, a sense of belonging, uh, then we really need to not just give lip service to being inclusive, uh, and we need to create conditions where that can exist. Right. That was a great uh, story that, well, not great, but great outcome, I guess, that came out during the pandemic around South by Southwest. And for years, the um, advocates in the disability community have been asking South by Southwest to make their programming virtual. And they would always say, nope, can't do it. Too yep. expensive, too hard, can't do it. You probably remember this, right? And then COVID oh, yeah. hit and they're like, we're making it virtual. <laughs> and so suddenly it worked, right? And so yeah. it is how we are showing up. Is that commitment to equity? If we cared about equity, we would have done it all along, right? Absolutely. Versus now it matters to us. And so we're going to act on it. it. It became a necessity. I will say, I will put my, I, I laugh not because of South by Southwest, but we were saying the same things, right? Which was when you do this work, it, we, you've got to do it in person. That's the highest quality way is to do it in person. And I will acknowledge that when we do the work we do in person, there are some things that are difficult for people with um, other, you know, other abled people. So somebody who might be in a wheelchair is going to have a difficult time physically doing some of the work that we do up on posters with post-its and that kind of thing, or somebody with vision, uh, an envision, a vision impairment or somebody who has a hearing impairment, or as we discovered doing some work with a, um, a well-known local computer and telephone maker, um, the, uh, uh, they have a lot of engineers who are somewhere on the spectrum for autism. And you know, it's really uncomfortable for somebody who's on the spectrum for autism. It's like being in a room full of people working at boards the way that we do. Um, so uh, we, we uh, quickly pivoted out of necessity to building a set of virtual tools that would enable us to do this work. And we discovered a whole bunch of things about the quiet voices that weren't being heard, now being able to participate. Um, people who might be um, other able having an ability to engage in a way that they weren't able to engage before. So it unlocked something for us. Uh, it, it was because we were forced to do it. To do it. Um, you know, there'd been this prior, prior to it, there'd been this, uh, well, you know, we're serving the majority of the, the need and it's really infrequent that we encounter these other situations and we'll, it's on our list, but we, and we'll get to it, but you know, we didn't. Um, so uh, it's that's been a that's been a um, kind of a happy uh, outcome and 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 one that you know, was probably long overdue. That reminds me of a couple of things. There is a great book that my team knows I talk about a lot called Digital Body Language, and helps us understand how there there are a lot of benefits to Zoom and virtual meetings, but you've got to know how to use the tool yes. in a way that it doesn't play to the power of the folks who are more comfortable in this setting, right? The the folks who are naturally going to be the first to respond. And so using the, as the facilitator, knowing how to create that space where everyone is involved. The other piece that makes me think is we often say that it's about not designing for the majority, but designing for the margins. 
And it sounds like that's what you all do too, right? When you really push to say, who are the folks who are on the outside of the room? Why are they on the outside of the room? And how do we make sure that they're included and welcome as well? Yeah, you know, there's this this concept of of um, sort of uh, operating at the edge, and so I think the mar- I like the edge better than the margins because people are, shouldn't be marginalized. They're at these different edges, right? And and um, so we do some work. There, there's an exercise we almost always run when we're doing when we're doing a workshop with clients, and it's called matters most. And and so so given given the problem space we're operating, who matters most to you? Um, and they identify that, and we might come up with dozens or hundreds of, of different types of people who matter matter to them and then say okay of those who matters most and then of those people who matter most to you who matters most to them um we'll 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 kind of get this convergence uh, on who matters most by doing some dot voting or some plus voting if we're doing something virtual to create focus but what we do is say that's interesting we now see where the kind of status quo is or who matters to you i'm really interested in those edge cases uh, cases i'm interested in the in those those like somebody who only got a single dot or one plus, as opposed to somebody who's got 20 on them. Why did they get a plus? And so, so we'll often ask people when they're sort of voting for in, in that situation, put the, put one dot on the persona that, that obviously we have to pay attention. We can't ignore it. And then put two, your other two dots on somebody who's totally unexpected. You haven't been thinking of, but you think we really ought to pay attention to so you sort of force them to the edge. You force them to look at that, um, and you're going to come up with a you're going to come up with a, a a much more unexpected and um, compelling solution if you start designing or building from those perspectives. If you start if you start looking at the problem from this other place than from where where everybody looks at the problem. Do you find that folks are then willing and ready to act on that? Right, because I'm sure in some cases that would be a pretty large departure from their strategy. So, well, that's that's an interesting question, and it comes back to your question of of what are people coming to us and asking us to work on now. Um, in, in addition to the things that I outlined, the sort of DEI focus and, and this, what are our new ways of working? Um, we have been also working with clients around this idea of a system of innovation. What does a system of innovation look like? And that's in large part because. Um, People really like from Think Wrong, they like the, the the idea generation phase. Hey, we've come up with these concepts that are really disruptive. And they've been asking us for several years, what's next? What's next? And, <laughs> and we, we thought it was just kind of a rhetorical question, but they are literally asking for help. Like, what do we do next? Um, so part of this is putting in place a system of innovation and, and a an approach to making small bets so you can test assumptions and learn and do what we call discovery-driven development. And that takes a lot of the risk out of what feels like, wow, you're really asking us to go outside of what's known and comfortable for us. You're asking us to do something that is truly disruptive and it's going to require a real change. It's like, yeah, but there's ways for us to, there's ways for us to test our most crucial assumptions rather inexpensively and rather quickly to build the confidence and to then make decisions about where are we going to, where are we going to invest our resource, where are we going to invest our time? Will this really make a difference? It's also super important in that work to bring bring the people that you think you're designing for into the process so you're designing with them, right? Um, don't, I, I mean, you know, it's kind of obvious I'm a middle-aged white guy, right? So I've lived a particular life of privilege and have a particular perspective. 
um, which blinds me to a whole bunch of things. So to, in, in, in order to be able to see the problem, in order to be able to imagine a solution that's going to be relevant to somebody who's not me, I need to bring them in the room, right? I need to bring other people in other perspectives. And there's a ton for me to learn from them. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's really important to, in terms of the adoption. How do we take, you, you don't want to, you can't, <laughs> you don't want to take all the risk out because if you take all the risk out, you take the opportunity out. Um, so you, so you need to do this, you need to make progress in a measured way so you can become more certain of the solution and you can, and you can, um, so it becomes less risky over time as you learn and you need to engage, uh, to me, I always emphasize, you know, I want as diverse a group as I can get. I want diversity on every imaginable spectrum, right? I want, I want gender. I want sexuality. I want lived experience, socioeconomic. I want, you know, ethnic or racial. I want um, seniority or newness in an organization. Like any, any and all the dimensions that we can possibly get, I want those. And then I want to create smaller teams that, ha that are each each team is its own little diverse universe because together that group is going to conceive of something they can't possibly conceive of on their own, right? Because they're going to bring together these different ways of looking at the problem. They're going to think about the, the problem and the solution as being this sort of emerging three-dimensional form. And everybody has a different view on that form, but collectively they see it in a way that they can't see it on their own. How long do you think it takes, takes for, for that kind of... Um innovation to happen, right? Like you're putting people in a room together to start these conversations, people who don't typically work together, who, who maybe don't typically even spend time with one another, and they're being given these big questions. I suspect sometimes it works really well. And sometimes it's hard to get it going, right? But when do you think the magic really starts to happen with really diverse groups like that? It can happen really quickly. Um, so the, 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 I think the question is, how do you sustain it over time? Right. So the um, what we found is you can pretty quickly create the conditions for these diverse teams to to really work well together and to and to work quickly together. There's some things you can do to sort of flatten status and and and, and create a more sort of collegial human to human connection very quickly. Um, so I mean we we've run sessions, you know, they're half day, full day sessions where you really by the end of the day you're just shocked by what's come out of them. Um, the question then is, how do you sustain that? That's what that comes back to this this need for a system that that is going to move move things forward. We're going to go test assumptions that you made. You're going to validate whether you're right about the pain or the problem or the friction you're trying to address. You're going to validate whether or not this the, the solution actually is meaningful and useful and and, and would be used by um, the people that you're creating it for. Um, and and that takes time. Um, and and that takes a that takes a, a rigor that has been missing from the design and I, I just call it the creative realm because there's this mythology of who's creative and who's not creative. And the mythology is, you know, you've got to be a Steve Jobs, you know, wire rim glasses and black turtleneck kind of person or, you know, crazy Elon Musk type to be considered creative. It's like, no, you know, those were, they were, they were extremely capable of being disruptive. Um, but, but everybody has within them the ability to be creative and um, and you can apply rigor and management to that to uh, allow that to um, show itself and, 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 and over, you know, repeatedly over time, as opposed to these sort of flash in the pan sort of moments of brilliance that people kind of imagine or what's behind a lot of the, 
what we consider innovations in the world. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's zoom out. We're wrapping up here and think about you have learned and applied so much through the book, through the clients that you work with. Not everyone will have the amazing opportunity to work with you. And so if you were to zoom out and think about organizations who organizational leaders who are listening right now who are saying, gosh, my organization is stuck. How much I would love to be able to have a spirit and a culture of innovation. What are some of the things that you feel organizations could be doing, how they start that process, even some of the criteria that helps them get ready for this? Yeah. So people get very excited about solutions and they don't spend enough time on problem finding, right? So um, what the reason why uh, many um, initiatives fail is because they got excited by a technology or a trend, you know, digital transformation. We need to do a digital transformation. Well, what is digital transformation? Why are we doing it? What does that mean? Um, what are the problems we're trying to solve through digital transformation? Uh, and that means connecting back to individuals, not to, uh, not to a, an entity or a category of things, but saying, these kinds of people in these kinds of situations in this in this role or this 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 situation in a community in an organization, in an enterprise, whatever you know, um, they they are feeling this pain, and the pain manifests itself emotionally, right? They they have these these things that they're dealing with. Um, it, there are some root causes of that, and we need to get clear about what those root causes are. We need to apply. We need to then look at those things and say, do they actually align with our goals and our strategies as an organization? And we need to then start to build solutions from there. So that ability to be empathetic, that ability to discover where that pain or where those problems or where those opportunities actually lie is incredibly important. And that requires in an organization, you need representation. It cannot be the, the acronym from our military clients, BOGSAT, a bunch of guys sitting around a table or a bunch of white guys sitting around a table. Uh, you need diversity uh, on your teams that comes through that representation. You need to actually practice real listening skills. You need to learn how to hear um, because you will never understand what the pain or the friction of the problem is if you're not actually doing that. Um, and you need to, um, you, you need to uh, invite and um, spend real meaningful time with multiple perspectives and, and, and appreciate that around any particular problem or opportunity, there are going to be multiple perspectives and all of those perspectives have some element of truth. Right. Every one of those perspectives, even if you don't agree with it, you have to agree that there's some element of truth to it and you have to identify what's that element of truth. And then how do we build from there? Um, and then I think that it's important for organizations to reach agreements um, in, at, at a team level and at an organizational level about how are we going to show up? How are we going to work together uh, in a way that actually is productive and healthy? Um, and how do we demonstrate appreciation for each other in the work that we do? Uh, because that, those are the things that actually motivate and inspire people to keep showing up and working on hard things, right? Is that, hey, we've agreed why we're doing this. We've agreed how we're going to go about doing it. And we've actually shown appreciation for each other and the, and the fact that we show up with different perspectives and different knowledge and different experiences. But together, we're building something that we couldn't do without uh, one another, right? Um, so, so it, you know, short answer, start with problem finding. Pain finding, problem finding, not with uh, I'm excited about a technology or a trend. Um, and then there's this more uh, humanistic side of it about how do we assemble ourselves to do that work? Boy, you wrapped a lot into that answer, which is incredible. Clearly why you are so good at what you do. Um, and what I'll hold on to, there, there are two things, many that I'll hold on to, but two things I'm going to lift back up. 
Albert Einstein's quote. He said, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd take 55 minutes on the problem and five minutes on the solution. Right. <laughs> which definitely resonates here. Um, and then also this idea of listening, including listening to what you don't want to hear. And I think that can often be the hardest for organizational leaders who are, they're hearing certain things really loud and clear, but the things they don't want to hear are often the things that people don't tell them because they're the hardest ones to say, right? So the hardest truths are the hardest to hear. And, and once you hear those, you can, in fact, really advance on that big picture purpose. Absolutely. We have, um, we have a particular exercise that we do. It's a, feed, it's a way of receiving feedback. We call it SAZU, which stands for share and shut up. Which is <laughs> so share your it, it, what will happen. The team will be working on something. They share, and then they actually have to be quiet. Um, and they're going to get feedback. They're going to get, and we ask for feedback in in a certain, a very specific way. I like, I wish, I wonder, and then open ended questions. So you share this thing with me. I like this about it. I wonder this about it. I wish this about it. I have a question about it. And as a team or a leader, you don't respond with anything but thank you. You take notes. And then you go away and you go, okay, what did we hear? And what, and, and what do we think we need to act on? What do we need to do? Be, what that does is it takes us out of that defensive posture that we're in. Whenever we present an idea, we get immediately go into a defensive posture because we're trained to know people are going to try to disassemble that idea. They're going to start to take it apart. We just get trained to do that. Critical thinking is not destructive thinking, but that's actually what people think it is. So I'm going to tell you this thing and I'm going to, you're going to share something with me and I'm going to destroy it. That's the nature of the relationship. If instead I'm going to share something with you um, and then I know that you're going to give me feedback in this particular form, I'm going to take notes and then I'm going to decide what if that was useful and relevant and do I need to act on and what am I going to ignore? I didn't spend any energy defending my idea, right? Um, and you got to give me all this feedback without being interrupted by my trying to tell you why you're wrong and why I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> One of the best practices in parenting a teen, too, by the way. That will also work. <laughs> um, it turns out that there's a whole bunch of things that work with young kids and teens. It gets progressively more difficult with adults. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> My wife teaches first and second grade. So it's like, oh, you do that. I do that, too, with adults, but they don't listen. <laughs> <laughs> and I always count on the kids. Yes. <laughs> well, Greg, oh, my gosh, that went fast. That was so much fun. Thank you for letting me pepper you some, with, with some questions and having so many incredible insights to share with us. You said it oh, would be no. so, right? 20-minute power fast. conversation. Super here. fast. <laughs> okay. Yeah, unfortunately, I could talk all day. So, but, uh, but it has been a real real pleasure to, to um, chat with you. And, uh, and thank you for the thoughtful questions as well. It's always nice to, to have a conversation that, that's intriguing and interesting and revealing. So. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Mission Forward. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Mission Forward is produced with the support of Nimra Haroon and the Mission Partners team in association with True Story FM. Engineering by Pete Wright. Music this week is by Space Doves and Josh Leek. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, I hope you'll consider doing just that for our show. But the best thing you can do to support Mission Forward is simply to share the show with a friend or colleague. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you next time.